My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. I'll be able to make friends. I'm just trying to help you make some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and put in context. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Will our botched vaccine rollout end up shutting down the economy? Will the crazy action in short squeezes like GameStop cause the stock market to collapse under its own weight? Does it even make sense to fret about this stuff with a slew of major earnings reports on the way starting tomorrow? After a day where the market was torn in two different directions, Dow declining 37 points, S&P advancing 0.36%, and then Nasdaq gaining 0.69%, we need to talk about what I think of as the vaccination GameStop dichotomy. This weekend, we were treated to story after story about how President Biden's pledge to jab 100 million people in 100 days could be impossible to carry out. Even if we work out the logistics problems, there may not be enough vaccines to go around. Meanwhile, we keep hearing about these new COVID strains that could potentially beat the vaccine, making the whole exercise pointless. We already know the economy is weakening. While new infections have begun to pull back from their highs, although we're still seeing many days with well over 200,000 cases, the psychological impact is causing people to stay home, resulting in kind of a voluntary shutdown. But it's not like the economy's in ruins. For the 93% of the workforce that's still gainfully employed, they've got nothing to spend their paychecks on. So they either invest or pay down debt. The service economy may be in horrible shape, but unless you work in travel, leisure, dining, or sports, especially if your company is private and small, you may be doing just fine. Meanwhile, ultra-low interest rates make it easy to buy a new house or a car, something Americans are doing in droves as they leave the cities for the suburbs or even the country. I talk to the home builders, and they say this may be the best housing market they've ever seen because people are desperate for homes with workspace and school space where they can be safe from COVID. You can't put a price on safety, people. And that's why home builders are selling lots so quickly. That's why they keep blowing numbers away. The wholesale exodus from cities has fueled a gigantic number of upside surprises. The new hybrid remote work style has been an enormous boon to the service industry and to retail. Oh, and if you're worried about going out, there's always the stay-at-home enablers. Here's some uh, logical ones. Amazon, Netflix, Take-Two, Domino's. There's other ones just like it. Sure, you have to be worried about the slowness of the vaccine rollout and the undisciplined way people wear masks, the lack of testing infrastructure. But I don't think we're headed for another lockdown. Frankly, the state simply can't afford it. And that's why the governor of California just lifted a stay-at-home order, even though the outbreak's still pretty bad out there. We know how to do this, though. You can leave most of the economy open as long as you keep the elderly and the at-risk at home. So if you're selling stock here because you believe the economy's cracking, I think you're making a mistake. The Federal Reserve is keeping interest rates low. We hear from Chairman Powell on Wednesday, and I have no doubt he'll stick to his guns when it comes to easy money. Meanwhile, most consumers have lots of spending money that they'll be able and and eager to use once we're vaccinated and the world goes back to normal, please. But how about the second worry, that the stock market will be brought down by the wild actions in stocks like GameStop. That's that retailer place game. You go in and you buy video games and, you know, you buy the hardware Uh, This GameStop is really something we must talk about because it's been bid up uh, higher and higher by enthusiastic traders. Now, there's a forum I've mentioned before, Wall Street Bets. It's on Reddit. Now, a lot of younger people read Reddit. I read Reddit because younger people read it. That's why. Now, they've got a community of very rabid investors who will choose individual stocks and then run them up as a group with commentary about how much they love them. 
Now, they don't target just any stocks. They go after the ones that are heavily shorted in order to come up with a short squeeze. They'll come up with a thesis all in display and then run them and run them until the shorts have to cover their positions, spurring still one more leg higher. Now, I know what it's like to get caught on the wrong side of a short squeeze. The only thing a short seller can really do when targeted is to throw in the towel. No point in trying to fight it. You just have to cover your short, meaning buy back the stock to close out your position before, before you run out of money. You can see this battle, how it played out in GameStop today. Look at this, okay? And that was just today. See that spike? Yes. The shorts believe the company's worthless, but the longs think it's going to the moon. Long term, I think the bear case is right. GameStop is a brick-and-mortar video game retailer at a time when people increasingly download their games off the Internet. But I don't believe that short term. Short term, they have the new Xbox. They have new PlayStation. They just came out with those things. They're flying off the shelves. They've got a new big investor who's very smart. Uh, it's easy for the longs to come in and gun GameStop higher and make good money. If it, it, it hasn't been made already, though, when the stock spiked to 159 today before closing at 76. The Wall Street bets crowd can easily find stocks with big short positions. They're, you can look them up. It's not a problem. GameStop was ludicrously shorted. More than 148% of the stock had been sold short, which is nuts. For years, betting against this thing has been like shooting fish in a barrel. But they forgot what can happen when the longs gang up on you. And gang up is a technical term. I'm not saying they're working in concert. I'm not saying they're doing anything illegal. I am saying that they are in force. We saw the same thing today in B&G Foods. You know, we've had them on Bed Bath. We've had them on, too. They've got short positions of 36% and 63%, respectively. They're going after Rocket Mortgage with a 31% short. It's crazy out there. Bed Bath Beyond Stock, which opened up four at 34, then leaped to 47, squeezed up by the cheerleading smaller investors. And then it plummeted to $30.68 to finish up just 47 cents. The squeeze didn't stick. My advice to the shorts, I'm not going to make, give any advice to the Wall Street Reddit crowd. They're making a lot of money. But my advice to the shorts, stop crowding to the same trades, leaving yourself open to this kind of action. You'll never know who Wall Street bets will target next. Now, not all of the, these targeted buying campaigns are about uh, busting the shorts. Some of the stocks they aim for are genuinely loved and they think are very undervalued. Here I'm thinking BlackBerry. It's got a good software business. Palantir, both of which had gargantuan runs today. They are so loved, and the Wall Street Bets crowd doesn't seem to want to stop buying at these levels. They always look at, use these targets like the analysts who are too enthusiastic. But as entertaining as these moves are, this stuff is ultimately a sideshow. At the end of the day, I don't think a Reddit form can bring the house down. They're picking undervalued stocks, bet a big short position, and running with them. And that can cause crazy moves in a handful of stocks, but it's not big enough to move the entire market. Come on! What really matters now is that we have a stock pickers market for the first time in 20-odd years. This is a market that rewards individual companies for being well-run. And that means stocks are less sensitive to the broader economy than they used to be. Now, we know many of the biggest winners thrive in a shutdown because they enable the stay-at-home economy. Remember that? Stay-at-home economy, we've got, we've got just indices galore to show this stuff. I think most of tech has gotten overheated at these levels. The endless price target boost for the semiconductor and Apple are very unnerving to me. They set a high bar. That can hurt the market. There's a whole gauntlet of stocks that are from, roared from Microsoft to Tesla to Boeing to AMD, and they they could really hurt us if they get hit with a big bout of profit taking all at once. But of these, only Apple's at its highs right now. Meanwhile, when a company reports a decent quarter, as Kimberly Clark did today, the stock soars. Hey, do you know that Clorox followed up in sympathy at one point? It's up 22 points. Of course, stocks go down just as much when they disappoint, and that's what happened to IBM last week. It's a market of stocks, people. So the bottom line, with the exception of a handful of gigantic tech plays, there isn't a stock out there that's big enough to bring down this market. If anything, the gauntlet of earnings this week started with J&J tomorrow. 
which is not at all sense of the economy, could be a terrific sign that many big cap stocks are immune to a slowdown and unperturbed by the crazy action in marginal names like a GameStop or BNG Food or even a rocket motion, Bed Bath & Beyond. It's a market of stocks, people, not a stock market anymore. Let's go to Andrew in Vermont. Andrew. We are Dr. Kramer. First time, long time here. Oh, I like being a doctor. What's happening? All right. Thanks for having me on the show, and thanks for everything you do for us little guys. Oh, I'm sure trying. I'm sure trying. All right. Uh, last summer, I took up a position in the defense industry with a company that manufactures communication gear for a nation's warfighters. Uh, it initially made some gains, but has since been on a slow decline, despite reporting a boatload of new government contracts. With a dem in the White House and earnings being reported later this week, what's your opinion on L3 Harris? Okay, I think that people, first of all, thank you for those uh, nice comments, Andrew. I think there are a lot of people who feel this way. The Democrats come in, defense stocks do badly. Of course, that's not true at all. As a matter of fact, it is often the opposite. We're going to hear from Raytheon tomorrow. Of course, that was a, a, a tremendous, tremendous uh, interchange that they did with United Technologies. And Raytheon will tell us how to, what to do with L3 Harris. I need to go to Aziza in Texas. Aziza. Hey, Mr. Kramer. How are you? I'm doing well. How about you? Fine, thank you. My husband and I always watching your show. It helps us a lot. Thank you so much. Ah, uh, you're too kind. Thank you. My question is about Dropbox. What do you think about the company? Should I buy? Um, I think that the problem with Dropbox, frankly, is it just doesn't have any earnings momentum. Now, I felt this, you know, you could say, well, hold it, neither did Slack, and that got a bid. But I don't know who's going to bid for Dropbox, and I do think that Microsoft is being very competitive. So, I would, Aziza, I would prefer you not to be in Dropbox when there's so many other good tech stocks to own. All right, what matters is we have a stock picker's market for the first time in a long time. And I don't think there's a stock big enough to bring this market down, even as you'll hear negative commentary about it has to crash now because of GameStop. No. Oh, man, money tonight. Is it time to head west for your next investment? I'm eyeing Boot Barn after earnings to see if it's worth considering here. Then, which electric SPAC plays are you plugged in for for profits? We tell it all tonight. And it's been more than one year since the first reported case of COVID-19 in the United States. As fears over the new COVID strain continue to make waves, I'm going to sit down with Dr. Michael Minna to find an easy and affordable way to keep the virus at bay. We're not using it. So stay with Kramer. Boot Barn is back and it's better than ever. Before the pandemic, this was one of the best stories from retail. Boot Barn is a lifestyle brand that sells Western and work-related footwear and apparel. It was one of our favorite stories because no one on Wall Street seemed to know about it. Stocks surged more than 160% in 2019. Then COVID hit, and the stock got obliterated because Boot Barn sells a lot of work clothes, and work sites everywhere got shut down. Once again, everybody forgot about this one. Well, I wish we'd paid more attention because Boot Barn spent the last nine months steadily working its way back towards previous highs. Earlier this month, the company pre-announced some spectacular fourth quarter results, and that sparked another move higher with Boot Barn surging to new all-time highs. So could this thing even have more upside? Let's take a closer look with Jim Conroy, the president and CEO of Boot Barn, to get a better sense of where his company is headed. Mr. Conroy, welcome back to Mad Money. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us on again. Okay, so, Jim, we've seen the final numbers here, and they are excellent, of course. You did pre-announce. I am blown away by the fact that you had a January that is a double-digit comp in an era when many retailers can't even manage single digits. How'd you do it? 
Well, we're really thrilled with the January performance, right? Plus 17 consolidated, plus 20 in the stores and brick and mortar stores. And I think that's one of the things that has always differentiated Boot Barn is the strength of the stores business. Uh, I think it's a number of different things. Some of our internal initiatives are really taking hold. I, I would acknowledge that a portion of that acceleration in the comp between December and January is undoubtedly due to stimulus checks, we believe. Right. Uh, having said that, the underlying business continues to be very strong. Okay, so Jim, I've done a lot of work on the idea that a lot of the little players have not been able to survive the pandemic. Has the competitive landscape for you changed? You had, no, you're number one. You got about 10% shares. The chance for now for this is your chance to garner more share. It does. The the traditional mom and pop retailer, a guy that's got one store or two stores in a local market, frankly, is our number one competitor across the country. So as we open stores or make small acquisitions, we're truly taking share from somebody that doesn't have a national brand, doesn't have a professional buying team, hasn't been developing a lifestyle brand over the last you know decade or so. So we are taking share from uh, mom and pops. That's a trend that's been going on for the last eight or 10 years and probably has been accelerated due to the COVID pandemic. Okay, so I know that you believe you can have 500 stores long term. That's basically a doubling of the fleet. Um, Brick and mortar makes sense to you. A lot of other companies are shying away from it. It does. For us, it's it's a no-brainer. Our, our stores pay back in less than three years, 30% cash on cash return in the first year. And when we look at what's happened over the last few months, even during the pandemic, our new stores in brand new markets where Boot Barn isn't even that well known yet are paying back in less than three years. We're opening up new stores in mature markets and seeing much less cannibalization than we had anticipated and then if you, even if you just think about during the pandemic, we've been able to demonstrate positive same store sales in our brick and mortar stores. So we're very bullish on increasing our store count. We think the 500 number um, is very much in reach, if not more. And you know, that's just here in the U.S. Now, I was thinking, I'm always looking for recovery plays that are also doing well. You know what? We're going to have rodeos coming back. And uh, you know, that's really what I regard boot barn. You know, remember, the rodeos all over the country. It's not just one area of the country. I think that you guys actually could be a recovery play. Well, there's a number of things that we believe upcoming can be future wind in our sale, right? We've been battling COVID. Hopefully that will dissipate. We've been battling um, softness in the oil markets, which I think is starting to rebound a bit. Uh, we've had top line pressure from rebranding Shepplers.com. That will go away. We've been fighting to get inventory through the supply chain during the pandemic. That should go away. And then to the point that you're, you've made, events will come back, right? There's more than a thousand rodeos around the country every year and every single country music concert for the last nine or 10 months has been canceled. And those are the types of events that give our customer the catalyst to buy a new pair of boots, a new outfit, a new pair of jeans, a new hat. And you know, they've been sorely missing. Uh, we've been hustling to try to make up for, for uh, that kind of loss in, in customer demand. But I think going forward, there's some really um, bright prospects for us that should hopefully continue our comp trend or have it improved. Oh, one last question. You brought up this notion of the work boot. 
particularly the oil patch work boot. How do you feel about the oil patch coming back? Because I see oil prices going higher. And how do you feel about just the, the work boot and the, the consumer who goes to work every day? Where are we there? Well, that customer for us, the work customer in general, seems to be very strong for us. Our work boot business has been strong for several quarters, uh, certainly pre-pandemic. And then even during the pandemic, work boots really led the reemergence of the business. The oil patch has been under pressure. We've called out softness and flame-resistant work apparel, which tends to correlate strongly with the, the oil markets for us. But we're starting to see a nice pickup in pull-on work boots, which is for the oil patch. It does seem that that part of the United States is starting to reemerge and build back strength. So we're a bit bullish that oil could become a tailwind to us over the next couple of quarters. I couldn't agree more with you. And uh, you just did incredibly well during the pandemic. And the numbers we're seeing now are extraordinary. Jim Conroy, President CEO of Boot Barn. Congratulations on all your success, sir. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. When you look at retailers, they have to have something special. Okay, they have to be something that can grow and grow. And Boot Park can put up a lot more stores and keep hitting it out of the park. Man, money's back here. Last Friday, we got still another electric SPAC deal, where an electric vehicle startup agrees to come public through a reverse merger with a special purpose acquisition company, basically a pot of money that exists solely to buy other businesses. The SPAC, Climate Change Crisis Real Impact One Acquisition Corp., CLII, for you home gamers, is joining forces with EVGO. That's an electric vehicle charging station play. And Wall Street can't get enough of this one. CLII surged from 13 to 22 on Friday. That's a monster 65% gain for pulling back a few today. You usually get a big pop when these electric SPAC transactions get announced, but this one was especially huge, which is why I'm really focusing on it. More important, EVGO will be the third electric vehicle, third electric vehicle charging company to list in this fashion. A year ago, there were none of them. Now this is a full-blown subsector. And the charging stocks are beloved by investors. Makes sense. These days, it feels like everybody wants a piece of the electric vehicle action, doesn't it? As the big automakers roll out more and more electric models, you're going to need a lot more charging infrastructure. And with the Democrats running the show in Washington, you have to assume there'll be some generous subsidies or tax credits. We've got all these startups making electric cars and trucks and buses and vans. We don't know which ones will catch on, but we do know they'll all need the juice. And that's what makes the charging story so compelling. Now that there are three of them, and here we go with that beautiful graphic, uh, three of them, we got to figure out which one's the best of breed. Now, first, you've got that climate change crisis, real impact that's merging with EVGO. Then you've got the first one, uh, you know, this, this switchback. Uh, energy acquisition, that's merging with ChargePoint, all right? And then last month, we learned that another SPAC, TPG Pace Beneficial Finance, is joining forces with EV Box. All three have had enormous runs. We're not early here. While ChargePoint's pulled back from 49 right before Christmas to 38 and changed today, it's still up nearly 200% from where it was trading in early November. Meanwhile, EV Box's SPAC partner, TPG Pace Beneficial Finance, has pulled back from 33 to 24, but just over six weeks ago. It was a 10. So how do we identify the best of the bunch? Is it ChargePoint? Is it EV Box or EV Go? 
This is an exercise in what I call comparison chopping. You need to sort through what each company actually does. Check out their bloodlines. Who's running them? Who's funding them? Evaluate the financials. Then finally consider the price. This is the way to, mer- to really analyze both the SPACs and the EVs. And we're teaching tonight. Let's start with the narrative. ChargePoint's a 13-year-old company based in California with more than 4,000 customers running in networks of over 115,000 charging sites across North America and Europe. Rather than operating their own stations, get this, ChargePoint sells other companies everything they need to electrify their parking spaces. Network charging hardware, software subscriptions, maintenance and support, not to mention a mobile app that tells drivers where they can plug in their cars. That's what you need. I think it's a compelling business model. They make money selling their hardware. They get recurring uh, revenue from subscriptions. They keep everything running. It's charging stations as a service. I love the business model. It's light on the inventory, heavy on the expensive software. How about the CV box? All right, this is a 10-year-old Dutch company with 190,000 charge ports uh, across 70 countries. Now, like ChargePoint, they both sell hardware and have a software-as-a-service component, which I love. The biggest difference, ChargePoint started in America, then started moving to Europe. EVbox started in Europe, where they currently are the market leader, before expanding into America. This is one industry where European exposure might be very attractive. Why? Because their governments have been much more aggressive about pushing alternative energy. As for EVgo, the one, one we found out about on Friday, this one's a little different. They own and operate the largest public fast charging network, fast charging be operative, a network of electrical vehicles in America, and their network's entirely fueled by renewable energy. Of course, the, the largest public fast charging network still isn't very large. We're talking less than 900 locations, 67 metro areas across 34 states. But EVgo's got some real great partnerships. There's General Motors. They picked these guys for their nationwide electric infrastructure build-out. The plan is to add more than 2,700 sites over the next five years. The company also in business with Uber and Lyft. So ChargePoint and EVbox are basically arms dealers supplying anyone who wants to build charging stations, while EVgo is a smaller operator that builds building a rapid charging network of its own. I have to admit... All three are very compelling. Let's keep digging down. You have to first look at the bloodlines. ChargePoint's run by a guy named Pasquale Romano. Now, he's an engineer with a lot of experience founding and then selling technology companies. The financial backers here get these names. Siemens, Daimler, BMW, even Chevron. Oh, I'm fantastic. We're less familiar with the European management team at EV Box, but they have a lot of software-as-a-service experience. What draws me to this one is the SPAC they're managing, merging with, TPG Pace Beneficial Finance, which is an offshoot of TPG, and that is a fantastic private equity titan. I know them well. EVgo's intriguing. The CEO is Kathy Zoy. She has run a distributed generation software company and a rural electrification company. She's got venture capital experience at Silver Lake. Big name. Perhaps most important, she was assistant secretary and then acting undersecretary at the Department of Energy under President Obama, where she oversaw more than $30 billion in energy investments for the government. Very useful connections now that Biden's in the White House. Plus, the SPAC EV goes merging with is run by David Crane. Do you remember him? He's the former CEO of NRG who transformed an old-fashioned utility into a more of a clean energy play. It didn't work. The company uh, didn't like him, but it's now working big. Crane was a classmate of mine in law school and a friend. He's been a pioneer in the field. He's a little too early. Maybe not now, though. Next, how about the numbers? I don't want to get too bogged down in the long-term projections here. Nobody really knows how much they can make in 2027. But fortunately, all three companies have real revenue right now. ChargePoint did $135 million in sales last year. Management thinks they can grow out a 50% clip this year. EV Box brought in 70 million euros last year, and they're forecasting 72% growth this year. Better than ChargePoint. 
Given that EV box is a lot more conservative with their long-term projections, only giving numbers out to 2023, I'm inclined to take them darn seriously. They also think they'll be breaking even by 2023, at least in terms of earnings for interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. And that's a year before ChargePoint believes they'll get there. EVgo is early in its life cycle. They had 14 million in revenues last year. Not that big, but they, they only see growing 49% this year. But then EVgo projects 54 million in 2022 and 166 million in 2023, which would represent a massive acceleration. If their sales take off like that, wow, management thinks they'll be EBITDA positive in 2023. Once again, ChargePoint and EV Box are very similar, though EV Box seems to have the edge right now. EV goes the smaller, more speculative story with a faster growth trajectory. Think higher risk, higher reward. Tyree Kill versus, say, Mahomes, all right? Finally, let's talk price. Remember, they still haven't finished merging with their SPAC part, uh, their backers, but right now, ChargePoint has an implied enterprise value of $11.1 billion. EV Box is just under $3 billion. EV goes at $4.6 billion. Assuming they can hit their 2023 sales forecast, ChargePoint's trading at more than 18 times sales. EV goes at 28 times sales, both very expensive. Only EV box sports a reasonable valuation, less than seven times 2023 sales. ChargePoint, remember, trades under SBE, $38.68. EV box trades under TPGY, $24 stock. EV go trades under CLII, $19 stock. Bottom line, if you want a charging station play, boom. EV Box seems like the best of the bunch, very similar to ChargePoint, but with a faster growth and cheaper stock. Remember, you need to buy the SPAC TPG Beneficial Finance, and I think you can start building a position right here at 24. If you want something more speculative, you've got my blessing to pick at EV Go on weakness. That's climate change crisis real impact, though ideally you should let it come in a bit more because it's a lot hot to handle. But holy cow, this space is something. I want you to keep in mind right now, the CNBC SPAC 50 is keeping track of all these for you. And we're keeping track of the CNBC SPAC 50. I want to go to Jack in Pennsylvania. Jack. Jim, a great big booyah from Allentown. Oh, my. I was in Allentown yesterday. How do you like that? That's a great coincidence. That is a great coincidence. Glad to have you here in our great city. I think that that's a good sign. What's up? First-time caller, long-time listener. Thank you. Are you are you still bullish on Ford Motors? They seem to be all in with their electric vehicles. Where is the stock headed? Okay, remember Jim Farley's running the joint now, and he is amazing. He's gotten the backing of the of the family. Uh, this quarter may have warranty issues. I don't want to have too much uh, hype into the quarter, but my Chapel Trust owns it. You can follow along by joining the ActionAlertsPlus.com club. We have a nice gain. We're not adding to the position right here. I think that's important for people to know. Let's go to Dwight in Connecticut. Dwight. Hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. The stock I have a question about is XL Fleet. I know you spoke about it in mid-December, pre-merger, and the stock has risen to 35 and came back down to under 20. I bought some around 21 and was looking to kind of buy some more. My question is, with several analysts giving this stock price between 30 and 60 and the company being one of those EVs that actually has cars on the road, should I buy more or should I, I be would. worried about this? I would. This is a space I like very much. And tonight we're going over this group. And I think that this is the most popular group that I can find of all these companies that are coming public. Why? Because we have a Biden administration and we got to clean the darn air. And I think there's a consensus building about that. I think you're in good shape. Thank you for the kind comments. Everybody wants a piece of the electric vehicle action, making the charging stations compelling. And now you know how to play it. Look at this. You've got them all right here. Could you take a picture of it so you know and you can buy? Much more money ahead. The novel coronavirus continues to challenge our public health system. 
But one epidemiologist found an easy and affordable way to get a handle on the pandemic. I've got the exclusive. Then, is there any stock that can bring down this market for good? I'm giving you my take and telling you what to make of the GameStop situation. So stay with Kramer. While we wait for everyone to get vaccinated, we need to keep fighting to contain the pandemic. A month ago, we spoke to Dr. Minow. He's a professor of epidemiology at Harvard about his game-changing home testing plan. For just a couple billion dollars, the government could provide everyone with cheap, rapid tests like those that have been started to use in the U.K. Now, these are tiny bit less accurate than the PCR tests you get from a healthcare provider, but you can test yourself every morning. And if it comes up positive, you just stay home. Now that we've got a new president who's trying to push through a big rescue package, including $50 billion for COVID testing, this seems like something that could be potentially on the table. So tonight, we're checking in with Dr. Minna and do a demonstration. He's from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, who brought along some of these paper-based COVID tests to show you how easy it is. Dr. Minna, welcome back to Mad Money. Well, thank, thanks so much. Happy to be here. Well, hey, doctor, uh, before uh, you came on, I used this Innova COVID-19 self-test kit. It took me 90 seconds to actually do it. Of course, we have to wait 15 minutes to get the results, but the results actually was available far earlier than that. But we did want to wait. Uh, all I can say is, how do we get these? How does everybody get these? Well, these tests are being made today. The The biggest issue is that the regulatory framework uh, that we have to evaluate tests at the FDA is not keeping up with the science. It's it's evaluating these tests against the PCR, and the PCR is so sensitive, it's catching people for a long time after they've been infectious. And so what we need is we need to just, uh, we need to get a new pathway at the FDA to evaluate these, show which ones are effective to catch people when they are infectious, and that's all that matters. Are you infectious? If so, Stay home. If you're not infectious, no problem. Now, uh, it was very easy. I just put the I did a nose swirl, put the drops in this area right here, and then it showed me what to do. Now, this is something that I would imagine is far less expensive than the 30 to 35 dollar tests I keep hearing about. That's right. These tests, I have one in my hand here. These are these are, uh, you know, selling for about five dollars. They, they can be anyway. And uh, some companies are marking them up a lot. But this particular one by Nova is, is not uh, the Binex now test by Abbott is also selling for about five dollars. But then they, they do have it uh, associated with an e-medicine consult. So the, what we really need to do is get get all the prescriptions out of this, get the e-medicine consults out unless people are truly sick. But if we want to use this for surveillance, for personal surveillance at home so that I know if I'm safe uh, generally to go to work or school, uh, then we don't need doctors involved. We can just get people to have these cheap rapid tests that are available at home. Do you have examples where, uh, without disclosing anything that might be a test, where it is working, where we know that you've cut down the number of uh, people getting sick? Absolutely. This this particular test, this Innova one, we just finished a large a large trial on college campuses, and what we found was if, when we were using it uh, every couple of days, the test has been uh, nearly a hundred percent sensitive to detect people before they even get their PCR results back. So we've been finding that it is working as well or better than the PCR test to give immediate results find those who are infectious and, and uh, stop them from interacting with their peers in that case. Now, I want to make it clear, as great as it sounds, we are not in a situation where you can go on Amazon and buy these, correct? 
uh, for the most part, you can, uh, there, some of them will come around, but they will still have these e-medicine consults linked to them. So there's still a lot of other uh, uh, baggage that will be associated. So for the really cheap ones that are working exceptionally well, uh, unfortunately, they're not quite available yet. And yet, I would say, in terms of uh, what's going on in the country, we want to have an affordable solution. We don't want a solution that just can benefit rich people. That's exactly right. These tests are, you know, one of the best things about them, in my opinion, is they can make testing equitable. Not only do they make testing fast and accessible, it's a new level of equitability. Doesn't matter how rich or poor you are, especially if the government, you know, purchases them and gets them out to people, but the tests are so inexpensive that anyone can use them. Anyone can have them available to them near daily uh, for use. You know, you brush your teeth in the morning, you use a COVID test. If you're positive, you don't leave the house. If you're negative, you do everything else the same that you would have otherwise done. Okay, so let's let's posit what happens if people who got it, uh, had it, uh, haven't given it to anybody yet, and stayed home. Do you imagine that we could have a caseload that would be dramatically diminished or somewhat diminished? Absolutely. Dr- dramatically diminished. Dramatic. I'll put it this way. If we could get 100 people to go on and infect just 90 people, doesn't sound very good. You know, 100 people go, who are infected go on and infect 90. Right now, 100 people go on and infect 140, 150. But if we can get them to infect just 90, and we do that for four weeks in a row, we get, we get a 90% reduction in where we otherwise would have been. We can dramatically diminish cases in a month. All right. Well, with that, I have to ask, how can we make this happen? What do people, what do our viewers have to do to make this happen? Because this is the kind of thing that I want to make a huge cause because you are dead right about this. Well, I think that one of the biggest things is these these tests, you know, we need to make sure the money is there. And I think that the, the, the president's plan is putting the money in place to make sure tests like this can become available. And now we really need to make sure that the, that the FDA and others are keeping up with the science, that the regulation isn't getting stuck in where it was last February, that we're keeping up, we're recognizing uh, the limitations of PCR, we're recognizing the benefits of, of fast testing, and we push for new regulation at the federal level to ensure that every American get, can get access to these tests. You know, ideally tomorrow, we could be stopping this pandemic you know, in the very near future in the United States. Well, let's hope President Biden or some of his team listen to what you just had to say, because I think it's the most important thing that we can do at this very moment to try to stop the pandemic. Thank you so much to Dr. Michael Minna. Always great to see you, sir. You really make a big, big, big impact on everybody's life. Thank you. Dr. Minna is up at Harvard, Chan School of Public Health. Remember, it's public health. That's the real issue. It's not medicine. It's public health. Big difference. He's going to make a difference. You can make a difference. Bad Bunny's back into the break. There's battle lines being drawn. Nobody's right if everybody's wrong. Young people are speaking their minds to get so much resistance from behind. Now, listen, when Buffalo Springfield wrote that song 53 years ago, it was about Vietnam. 
But these days, it could just as easily be an anthem for the younger investors who flooded sites, like the aforementioned Wall Street bets from Reddit, with positive commentary about many heavily shorted stocks, with the biggest one being GameStop, the long-suffering video game retailer. Now, the short sellers have been running roughshod over this thing for ages, taking it from $47 less than six years ago to less than three bucks at its lows last year. Ooh, that would have been a good time to buy it back, wouldn't it have been? Not that long ago, the conventional wisdom on Wall Street said that GameStop was a corner. Several iterations of management had tried to turn the thing around, but with video games going digital and the mall going bye-bye, the future looked darn bleak. But then the new Xbox and the new PlayStation came out. New consoles are always great for GameStop. And last week, the company added Ryan Cohen, the founder of the phenomenally successful, successful Chewy, to its board of directors. Cohen had taken a major stake in GameStop last August, and the presumption is he's got a plan to save the business. Now, management's been silent the whole way, certainly not talking to me. But in the last few weeks, the stock has ramped from 17 to 80 with a pit stop at $159 today. A spectacular intraday turn. It's been an incredible win for the Bulls, including people pushing it on Wall Street bets. And my hat is off to them. They made a lot of money. And it's been an incredibly bad wager for the short sellers who borrowed about 148% of the float, meaning they shorted more shares than they actually, than are actually traded. Well, uh, they pushed the luck and it blew up in their faces. So what's all this about? I think it amounts to a street fight, the kind of thing we're used to seeing between big-time money managers usually. Hey, remember when Bill Ackman went to war against the Longs in an epic battle over Herbalife? Boy, did Scott Wapner do a great job on that story. Years ago, Ackman started pushing the story that Herbalife was basically a fraudulent operation. The Longs, including major players like Carl Icahn, regarded as a legitimate company, or as legitimate as you can be in the multi-level marketing business. Icahn came out swinging. Was he trying to burn the shorts? Didn't matter. You got a right to be vocal about your opinions as long as you disclose what you own and you don't commit fraud. Icon was just calling it as he saw it, and he ended up steamrolling Ackman. So back to GameStop. I think the stock's gotten overvalued, and the insider selling, by the way, has been pretty aggressive. Yet you could argue that Ryan Cohen is a miracle worker. Maybe the CEO of GameStop will use these prices to do a large equity offering, clean up its balance sheet, maybe even diversify into more successful, different ideas. Now, the shorts have been burned and may believe that Wall Street Bets crew are acting in concert and should have to file as such. If they're acting together, the government might question their disclosure, maybe deem them some group and go against them somehow. Some market makers who sold out of money call options to these people might squawk that they're manipulating the stock to foment a short squeeze in concert, hurting the market makers in the process. Now, I got to tell you, I don't think these guys are going to win. They wouldn't win in court. I don't think the government even has a case against them. But they could make Wall Street Bets people squirm if they can find them. My view. Look, I think the longs have every right to make their case. If you like a stock and you want to cheerlead, more power to you. Analysts do it all the time. Nothing's wrong with expressing your honest opinion as long as you're not making fraudulent claims or pumping and dumping, which is a crime, and the government will pursue the fraudsters. This is a First Amendment right. I think the shorts are probably right that the stock's too expensive now. It's really up a lot. But they can't win until the longs either declare victory or run out of ammo. At the end of the day, game stocks become a battleground stock. It's no longer about the company. People, it's about the players. And there are easier ways to make money than betting on cheerleaders or a possible government investigation. Let's take a call. Tina in Illinois. Tina. Jim, my husband and I love you so much. Oh, thank you. you. Every day. Thank you very much. Thank you. We're Action Alert members. Oh, we great. appreciate your knowledge and humor so much. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> I try to be funny in those videos I do in the morning. Like, my You're wife awesome. called in the middle of a video today. She called. I, lied. I told her it was an emergency, but it was an emergency. But she called. What's up? Bring her on the show someday. We'd love to meet her. Done. Um, so 
So we bought Canopy Growth on your recommendation, and we're up 85% in that position alone. And I'm thinking related to the legalization of marijuana, um, I'm thinking that might create more munchie seekers. And that, together with this company's recent partnership with Beyond Meat, I'm wondering if it would be a good play. Taco Bell, Yum Brands. What do you think? Oh, I like Yum Brands very much. I think that if they could just get this darn Pizza Hut fixed, although those cheesy pizzas look good, don't they? I think this is a great stock to own. I applaud you, and thank you for joining the club of ActionAlertsPlus.com. We have a great time. All right, everybody, I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Man Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. Now. 